On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about Code Red. It's a series in The Spectator about the intersection of social services and money and health and all kinds of things in the city of Hamilton. Ten years ago, Steve Bust looked into these things, figured that ten years later, things would be a lot better. Are they? Hmm. Not so much. Uh, we're going to talk about rough housing. There is a school district in Quebec that is allowing kids to have a rough play zone at recess. Good idea. And Don Robertson talks sports with me and a little bit about prostitutes too. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let, uh, let, me, let me start with this. Uh, ten years ago, which does not seem like it could possibly be ten years ago now. It does not seem like that much time has flown by. But 10 years ago, Steve Bust of the Hamilton Spectator wrote a series, did a series, researched a series called Code Red. And it was it was a series that won him all kinds of awards, but that was sort of secondary to the point of this, which was it outlined um, the weaknesses, the gaps in our health in our healthcare system here in Hamilton and the gaps in our social safety nets particularly when dealing with the effect of poverty on people throughout the city and the differences between people who of means and people who don't have much in the way of means and it was at the time it was i was going to say a bit stunning i think it was a lot stunning to see what the difference was between different parts of town not so much as what you could buy but when it comes to your health and to things along those lines. Well, a decade later, he has done an update. It's a seven-part series that is currently running in the paper and online. Installment number three in this seven-part series is up today. Uh, Steve Buse joins me now. Steve, how are you today? Good. Thanks, Scott. Good. Um, It's good to see, I guess, when we look back and start reading what you've written, it's good to see that in 10 years we've solved all of our problems. (laughs) Yeah, I wish that was true. (laughs) And sadly, it's not. Well, it... I got to say this, I mean, and this is not a uh, a knock about the writing. It's a terrific series. It's entirely depressing. It is, and it, it is for me as the person who had to write it. Um, I mean, I, I don't think I've been more discouraged in my professional life than I am right now. Okay, so first of all, as I said, I can't believe it's been 10 years because it seems that Code Red has never actually left the jargon. People in the social services and health sector in this city use it all the time still, that phrase. Uh, by the way, before I get into all this, do people, when they use it, has Code Red kind of become almost synonymous with anything you want to do with the health? It seems like it's become the, the word that you use for almost anything now in the city. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a unique situation where, uh, you know, what was essentially just the, the headline or the, uh, the brand that we gave to a series has become sort of shorthand in the city for, um, you know, describing... Uh, the combination of health, social, and economic factors. Uh, it, you, when you say code red in Hamilton, a lot of people instinctively know what it is you're talking about, which is kind of odd because it was really just the name we gave to a series. So that that was, again, that was ten years ago, and you uh, well nine technically. Okay. we wrote it nine years ago. The data is ten years old. So I just just in case people think I can't realize that <laughs> April 2010 is nine years ago. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but when you decided to launch the Redux and go and sort of look back at what was happening and do an update on this one, did you have an expectation of what you were going to find? Absolutely. And we actually, the three of us, uh, so Neil Johnston and Pat DeLuca, the two guys that have worked with me on, on a number of the Code Red projects, we, we actually sat down and said, okay, well, uh, we're going to do a 10-year, you know, the sequel that looks at 10 years. 10 years seemed to be a reasonable amount of time. That's uh, a good round number. And, and we said, geez, we're going to have to think of new ways to present this data because we're going to have all this good news that we're going to, and we're going to have to find new ways to map it. We're going to have to show people how things have improved. And then we get the results back in, in the fall, and it was devastating to all three of us. It was like this this can't be not not only were things not better with with a couple of exceptions but and not only were things stagnant in fact a lot of markers had actually deteriorated which was just so discouraging and and so depressing so you really honestly because a lot of people think that when a a reporter when a journalist goes to do something like this they love the bad news you you truly believe that there would be improvements when you went to look at the new numbers not only did we truly believe it but i want to assure people that we wanted to see that. I mean, 
Look, you know, you you just hit the nail on the head. A lot of people think that we revel in in bad news, but but the reality is, is you know, these are our communities as well, and and we we want people to be at their best, and we live in these communities. I was born in Hamilton. My dad was born in Hamilton. You know, it's it's part of my life, and and we want people to be prosperous, and we want people to be healthy. So it was just. To, to see that not only had there not been any improvements, but there'd been actually a, a decline was just, it, it was hard to believe that that could be true. And it was um, hard to believe, especially because there'd been so many uh, initiatives tried, there'd been so much energy, there'd been so much uh, excitement about Code Red. It, it really seemed to provoke people to try to come up with solutions. Well, and that's that's a great point because when this first came out, there was near, within those communities, so again, the, like social and, and health, there were near or almost, there was widespread acceptance and almost near unanimous ex- agreement that something had to be done and would be done. And so what has happened that nothing or at least nothing successfully has been done? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, first of all, what it points to is the complexity of this problem. And, and you know, Rob McIsaac, uh, you know, the president and CEO of Hamilton Health Sciences, he said it, I think it was in the first day of the series, that, you know, there is no silver bullet to this. It, it really, there's a lot of smart, engaged people trying to fix these issues. And trust me, if if there was one single issue or problem that could be fixed that could solve all of this, somebody would have figured it out by now. So first of all, it points to the complexity of the issues. It also points to just how interlinked your your physical health is with so many things that don't seem to have anything to do at first glance with health. Things like your your social situation, your economic situation, so your wage, your education. Uh, Steve, you said that uh, over the last 10 years when you thought things would get better, things have in fact got worse. Uh, Give an example or two if you can, and there's a lot of them here, I understand, but pick one or two that would be a sign that things are in fact getting worse. Yeah, so I think what struck people from the first one was a 21-year difference in lifespans from uh, the best to worst neighborhoods. Uh, Ten years on, what we found is that span has actually grown to 23 years. And we now have one neighborhood in uh, lower central Hamilton where the lifespan of people is under 65 years. I mean, really, we're talking like, you know, war-torn African countries. And and that's, you know, right here in a country as prosperous as as Canada. I think that's probably pretty shocking. Um, I guess the other thing that seems to be emerging from the data is, I, I don't know if crisis is the right word, but we sure seem to be approaching a crisis when it comes to uh, mental health issues, when you see the burden it's putting on the hospital system, um, probably for lots of different reasons, connected again to social and economic factors. This is one of those things that there are so many numbers in this, and there are so many markers that people are going to have to go read it. We we just don't have the time to do it all in the air here. And to be able to see the graphs and see the charts and see the numbers, you have to go read it. Again, it's online at thespec.com. I'll mention that again in a moment. But... When I look at the numbers, Steve, one of the questions that jumps out at me is, are the numbers fair? And I don't mean are they wrong, because I don't believe they're wrong. I believe you've got the numbers right. But when you consider that most people who are homeless, most people who would abuse drugs, uh, most seemingly new immigrants who are brand new to the country and may not have the education or the ability to work yet seem to settle in the downtown area, does that skew the numbers and make it look worse? Well, possibly, but I guess the, I guess the, what I would do is turn that around and say, so why is that happening? Why why is there this concentration of poverty in you know certain specific parts of the city and not in other parts of the city? And I think really, when you f- turn it around and look at it that way, that's really the the problem that needs to be attacked here. Why is uh, the the social and economic situation so concentrated? with negative outcomes in the lower inner city of Hamilton. And what do you do what do you do to to fix that really? Well, I mean, is there a fix to it? Not to be not to be completely defeatist, but you you're probably not going to knock down a subdivision of Dundas and put up low rent housing because those homes already exist. Uh, so is there a solution to it? Well, I I think that that there are measures that can be taken. I mean, we're never going to have, I don't think, a truly egalitarian society where 
um, you know, everyone's health and everyone's social and everyone's economic situations are exactly the same. But all you have to do really is look around to neighboring communities. Um, you don't see this, these same sorts of disparities in places like Burlington or Oakville or Markham or Vaughan. Now, there have always... Why is that? Well, and Steve, there have always been suggestions, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I've always heard the rumblings that Hamilton, for whatever reason, gets more people on social assistance dumped here, that they get get directed here or sent here. Is is there anything to that? Well, I don't know about directed or sent or dumped. I, I think what happens is it becomes sort of human osmosis. So... Uh, you know, Hamilton's a regional center for a lot of things. We have the big hospitals, we have the teaching hospitals, we have the university, we have the programs. And so um, we have also uh, an inner city that has, you know, traditionally had much lower rents and, and house prices than surrounding communities, including communities within Hamilton, such as Ancaster or Flamborough or Burlington. And so uh, what happens is that, you know, if if you have you know, some fairly serious mental health issues, or if you have some disability issues, or if you're living on a very low fixed income, um, you're going to end up by osmosis moving mm. to Hamilton, because that's the only place where you can be that you can afford, plus it's where your programs are. Right. And so then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And that's how you end up with, you start to see how you end up with this sort of... Uh, ghettoization like, almost. Yeah, almost, uh, uh, almost a ghettoization of poverty. So we only have a minute left and I wish we had a lot more, but this seems like it is a money issue in a lot of ways. This seems like so many of the programs need more money. So many programs need more staff and and which costs money. Uh, And yet we live in a province and, and most of the social and health programs are provincial responsibilities. And yet we live in a province that is awash in debt that's trying to get its 15 or whatever it is, billion dollar deficit down. How do we find the money to do the things that we apparently need to do. I, I would turn that around and suggest that we, we're already spending tremendous amounts of money. The question is whether we're spending those tremendous amounts of money properly. I mean, mm. health care gets $62 billion in, in Ontario this year. Um, I think it needs to be evident to people that it's not sustainable. And, and maybe that's what's going to win this over is the sort of economic self-interest argument that we just can't continue to to endlessly... Uh, pour money into hospitals, doctors, nurses, and specialists. It is uh, it is an amazing series. People need to go read it. Um, even if you're listening to this, saying I'm not all that interested in poverty, this is a this is beyond a poverty issue because this is, as you say, Steve, in one of the the pieces that this is costing everybody. Even if you're not interested in the people needing the help, it's costing all of us millions of dollars by what is not there right now. It's called Code Red, 10 years later. 10 years after, 10 years later. 10 years later. 10 years years after was the band. (laughs) Thank you. Slightly different. Uh, Code Red, 10 years later. And you can find it at thespec.com or in the paper. Steve Buse, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Uh, Please go read it. It really is worth your while and it is easy to read. It's easy to follow. Lots of charts, lots of graphs, lots of maps, lots of things there that will help you understand what we're talking about. It's a huge, huge problem. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You probably know by now that many schools have turned recess into a no-touch bubble wrap time. We have heard stories. You've heard stories. Maybe they're at your kid's school. No tag, uh, no playing with balls, no running, no cartwheels, no, no nothing. One school district actually, and this was a quote, said no, quote, anything that might hurt someone banned from recess. Now, I don't know whether that is because of a fear of litigation, probably, or some modern thinking about competitiveness or hurt feelings or whatever else. I'm not really sure, but hard play, let's call it. Vigorous play is a no-go, seemingly at many schools, until now. Two schools in Quebec and one school district in Quebec are experimenting with what they are calling rough play zones, During recess, there are rules, no kicking, no hitting, no biting, no throwing objects at each other. If someone says stop, you've got to stop, but you can tackle, you can roll around, you can basically roughhouse, you can do what, if you're a boy, especially, I guess, you can do what once upon a time we all thought that's what you did. Dr. Anthony Benedet is the author of The Art of Roughhousing, Good Old Fashioned Horseplay and Why Every Kid Needs It. He joins us now. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Of course. Thanks for having me, Scott. I'm betting... 
guessing, betting, I don't know what, but based on the title of your book, when you hear about these Quebec schools doing this, that you may be thinking this might not be a bad idea. Yeah, I, I just heard about it today when you reached out, and I am kind of excited about it, honestly. It's, it's interesting, though, in your kind of preview there, you're exactly right. I mean, this is play that was happening all the time and naturally when we were kids on the playground. And then we kind of went into kind of a time period of, of really kind of an obsession with safety, a hyper-obsession with safety, and we swung the pendulum all the way toward, like you said, you know, no touching, no high fives, no, no bumping, any, <laughs> you know, really no physical contact at recess, and now, it's, now it feels like maybe we're coming back a little bit and well, maybe a little bit back toward. Yeah. Maybe, because I'm thinking, when I saw this story today, the first thing that went through my mind is, wait a second, it was just, what, two or three weeks ago that everybody was arguing about that Gillette commercial where the dads are telling the kids, don't wrestle, and it's now the dads who are supposed to be stepping in telling their boys, you don't want to be aggressive and you don't want to have any rough housing, it seemed anyway, and so I'm not sure. This, that's why this story seemed to me to be so out of the blue and so out of the main. Right. Well, I mean, you know, the one thing, though, is that, you know, it, we often think of boys and as having kind of the most natural tendency to have, you know, to engage in rough-and-tumble play. And that's true from a biological standpoint, but girls also enjoy physical play um, just as much as boys, in fact. And it may take a little bit longer, a touch longer to warm up to that physical and high-energy state and bouncing around or wrestling or pillow fighting or whatever it is, but they enjoy it just as much as boys. And the benefits of that kind of play really, you know, they extend to both genders. There's no doubt about that. Well, we know, we know all about risks, right? Because that's what all the stuff that people have done with, with recess and stopping everything. It's all out of fear of some kind of risk. You mentioned the word benefits. What are the benefits? Are there actual tangible benefits to allowing this? Yeah. So good, healthy, rough-and-tumble play, we know, and the data is pretty good about this, this was done in the 1970s and 80s, that it promotes intelligence, and that's not just kind of the typical intelligence that you think of. It's not just IQ, like how well do kids do on tests or how successful are they in the classroom, but it also promotes emotional intelligence, and as well as social intelligence, as well as creativity. And... You know, the emotional intelligence thing is, is probably the most interesting in the sense that when you're engaging in healthy, rough-and-tumble play, whether that's with a parent or with a peer, that you start to understand what it feels like to have your emotions run really high and then also to run really low, like when you come down off of that intense play. And that's really what we want kids to learn, is we want, to learn, we want them to learn that emotions can go all over the place. They can go high and low and they want, we want them to know what that feels like so that as they grow up, their emotions aren't an on-off switch as adults. Instead, they're more of a dimmer switch and they can ride the highs and the lows. We, um, you say this is for both genders and, and that makes a ton of sense. Stereotypically, I guess, or what we think of is that uh, this is often for boys, and, I, and I'm not going to whittle it down to that, but we do know, we've heard stories, we've heard studies that boys are having a tougher time in school these days. Now, I don't know if it's got anything that one has to do with the other when we remove this, that it's harder for them. But, you know, it's funny. I was talking to someone at work today, and he said, look, if I was a kid in school, this is what we did all the time in recess. You take that away, I would have just been a bundle of energy sitting in the classroom all day. I would have never learned anything. Is there a connection there? You know, I think you're, I think it's exactly right. I think... I. There is not a hard connection from a science standpoint, but there certainly are suggestive studies and theoretical considerations. And that's namely what you just mentioned, and that when, when you bottle up energy, it actually doesn't equate to, for instance, reducing hyperactivity. You may be reducing hyperactivity for that moment that you're bottling up a child's energy, but in the long run, you're not teaching, emo- you're not teaching you know, regulation mechanisms. You're not helping their brains form those regulation mechanisms. It's got to come out. They need time. Yeah, exactly. They need time to just completely let loose. And recess, rather than, you know, comparing to, for instance, gym class, gym class is a structured environment. 
recess is the social and emotional laboratory for childhood. I mean, that's where they learn things, and they learn what, you know, they learn that some people aren't nice, you know, in the world. You know, they learn that at recess. They, they learn all these kinds of cool things. What's interesting about the story of the two schools that, that have been profiled, I think they were in Ottawa, is that right? Just, no, so. just in um, Quebec, just across the border, yeah. In Quebec. So what's interesting about that is that there is a school, so in the U.S., um, there's a school in New York City called the Blue School, which is a school that was started by the Blue Man Group, which is a mm. troupe in, in Las Vegas. They do a lot of fun. They do, you know, they're, they're here in Hamilton Broadway. tomorrow night, yeah. Are they really the Blue Man Group? Yeah, Perfect. they're here tomorrow so, night. Right, so the Blue Man Group started their own school because they wanted a school that they can, you know, just when you have a lot of money, you guys can start schools for your kids and whatnot. But they started, and one of the top priorities for their school was to actually have a room in the school dedicated to rough and tumble play. You know, they looked at the data on it, you know, the data on rough and tumble play, and looked at the developmental benefits for children. So they wanted to actually say, wow, we need to create a space for this. And I think that's when I read the story in Quebec about, you know, about what was happening, the, the safe zone outside, I thought of the blue school in New York City who has created a safe zone inside the school building for actually this, this kind of play. And that's basically because in, in New York City, you don't have a lot of outdoor play space. I mean, there, isn't, there aren't playgrounds for every school. So, but, but yeah, no, I, I think that it's... I, the other thing that I liked about this, the experiment or the story or the what the, the, the free zone or the plays that the rough and tumble zone is is offering is that there are some rules, and I think that that, that that's important too. That that there has to be some healthy, you know, respectful guidelines for kids to know and understand, so that there isn't a move toward aggression or violence during the actual playtime. Uh, What's interesting about that too, though, is that adult as adults, we don't, we don't, we are very good at understanding when play between two kids is moving toward aggression and violence. We're actually pretty bad at it. We usually stop the action too early, and you stop the action. You say, "Oh gosh, you guys are getting too, you know, too physical. You're getting too violent with each other," and the kids will look at each other and be like, "What are you talking about? We were just having fun," and that's. That's because we just don't, we're, we're not good at picking up on the clues as to when the play might be moving toward aggression or violence. And some of the clues are when the rules are starting to get broken. Other clues are more subtle, like the kids are all of a sudden not looking at each other in the eye. There's no smiling. There is, you know, it's, it's all out, I want to, you know, take you down and hurt you. Is it, this is maybe a ridiculous analogy, but is it similar to when you see animals that are sort of playing and they may be looking like they're fighting, but they're playing and there's a difference? Oh my goodness, it's a perfect analogy. It's a perfect analogy because animals are so good at it. They do it in such a nice, healthy way. And what I mean by that is good, healthy, rough and tumble play uh, involves usually the, the stronger animal uh, or the stronger person holding back their strength a little bit so that it's not just someone jumping on someone else and tickling them all the time, but it's, it's perhaps the stronger one self-handicapping herself or himself just to honor the playtime and to keep it fun and to keep it light and to keep it mutually beneficial for everyone involved. It's but a- animals are great at that. I mean, you'll see dogs roll on their back like when a polar bear comes up to them or what I mean, you know, you see there's tons of cool experiments like that out there that where animals really get that. Like I'm here, I want to have fun and I'm going to hold back my strength so that we can. I I know you got to go. And I I just, one more thing. I'm sure I I love the idea because again, I, I think back to when I was a kid and I, we play fought with our friends and we did all this stuff and I look at it now and, and, but what, it's inevitable that at some point, because you're allowing kids to wrestle, you're allowing kids to play, it's inevitable that at some point someone is going to get hurt, whether that is a bruise or a little cut or a broken arm or something. Do you think anybody in 2019 with our society the way it is has the stomach to stick with this kind of experiment when that inevitably happens? I think we're getting there, Scott. I think you're bringing up a really good point. And I think the key thing to think about is that what are we more afraid of 
as parents as te- and teachers? Are we more afraid of a skin knee or a or a bruised feeling than we are of life's bigger dangers like listless apathy and stifled creativity and anxiety and depression? What are we more afraid of? And I think if you answer the latter, then you'll realize that you're willing to take that small, small, small little risk. I won't get into all the ER data on this, but it's a small risk that you're going to have a major, major injury like a broken arm when you engage in this type of play. But it's a big risk if you don't, I think, and the data shows this, for all those things I mentioned. It's uh, if, if you're liking what you're hearing, if you're thinking, you know, this makes a lot of sense to me, uh, grab the book. It's author, uh, sorry, it's The Art of Roughhousing, Good Old Fashioned Horseplay and Why Every Kid Needs It by Dr. Anthony DeBenedet. Uh, really, really appreciate you taking some time today. I know we kept you longer than we were supposed to, but I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Oh, my pleasure, Scott. Thank you for ha- thanks for bringing this conversation into the fray here. Appreciate it. That again, The Art of Roughhousing, Good Old Fashioned Horseplay and Why Every Kid Needs It. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We bring in Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and ComChoice Realty and various other endeavors in Dundas, Ontario. And uh, before we get going, I did want to mention you are in the playoffs right now and you guys are tied with Stony Creek right now. Oh, we're down 2-1. We got beat Saturday night in overtime. You guys are giving them a good run. Uh, We... uh... Yes, <laughs> we we uh, we had an opportunity to win every game we've been in. So, and um, that puts us in good shape. Our guys are working hard. We're uh, we've 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 got a way we like to play them. Uh, we found out they're not particularly happy with that way, but we're not doing it to make them happy. We're doing it to win. So, we play again Wednesday night at Harry Howell Arena, and uh, that's it for those who don't know. That's Flamborough at the corner of Highway Five and Six, just t- Kitty Corridor to the Tim Hortons and w- Wendy's. Yeah. It is, and it's uh, it should be good. The guys are working hard. Mike Mole's playing like Mike Mole does in net in the playoffs, and we've got a chance to uh, to uh, square it up Wednesday night. And if we do, then we're a best of three, and who knows? Uh, if you're looking for something to do Wednesday night, that is a good thing to do. <coughs> support the league, support Stony Creek, support Dundas. There's also Hamilton in the league, and go see a Hamilton game as well. I don't know when their next game is. Friday night. In Hamilton at the Mountain Arena? At, at Dave Andrzejczyk Arena. And their series, Whitby and Hamilton, are tied 1-1. So lots of lots of hockey. If you want to see some good hockey, the Allen Cup League, the Senior A League around here, is uh, there's your opportunity. I wanted to get to that first, Don, because sometimes we get to the end of the show and then Great, thank you. it has slipped through. And I didn't want to do that today because I know you guys are in the playoffs. Uh, let's talk hockey for a second because NHL trade deadline was today. Once again, until the very end, underwhelming, as it seems to be almost all the time now, because GMs don't seem to want to leave everything till the last possible minute. Well, it can never, it can never ever live up to the hype unless Connor McDavid and, and uh, Sidney Crosby get traded. So the, well, they've the learned, hype though. is unbelievable. It, at one time, it was, though. At one time, it seemed like there was a lot more. But they've learned now, the GMs, like everything in hockey. If you change something in hockey, coaches may take a month or two to figure it out, but eventually they do. GMs are the same. They've figured out probably, usually we get deals done better if we don't wait till the last possible minute. But that's my question for you. If this is such a big deal, if the NHL, and you know the NHL loves the idea of this, all this coverage, just whatever it is, 15 hours of straight coverage on all the networks, should the NHL put a rule in that says something like two weeks before the trade deadline until the trade deadline, you cannot make trades. No. So you have to do it on that day. You can work on them, you can arrange them, but we announce them on that day and they don't happen until that day so that we have a... Well, the reason you can't do that is because if you you can make a trade, um, Ottawa could have made the, the, the trade with Stone to Vegas and Stone could have got hurt Saturday night. Well, he just doesn't play, but you just don't know where he's going. Well, they're not going to start taking. But one thing the the NHL should do, I think, and I know they listen, is not play today. Like it doesn't make any sense that on your biggest trade day, presumably, and it is, other than maybe the draft, which is done out of the season, they they should take the day off. It's a Monday for heaven's sakes, and Toronto and the Leafs are playing tonight, and 
give guys a chance to take a breath. I mean, they're out at practice. They don't know if they're being traded. They don't know when they come off the ice if well, that's Buffalo, not their team anymore. Buffalo, who is playing against the Leafs right now, they made a trade last night, but with Anaheim, and the guy wasn't able to make it in time to play. So Montour I mean, didn't get there? I, no, he's not playing tonight, apparently. Okay. So well, he was also guy. in Vancouver, yeah. but I think the trade was on Saturday. But th- that's kind of my point. Yeah. If you're going to make a trade, there's going to be guys that aren't in the lineup. It's not one thing. It's not like is basketball where they don't have a lot of guys. So if you trade three guys, you're playing three short that night because you haven't even got a farm team. Well, you know, okay, Don, you bring up a really interesting idea. Then, if you don't play on the night of the trade deadline, why could you not move the trade deadline back to say eight o'clock? So you have it as a prime time thing, so that because most people can't take the day off work and they want you to. Yeah. And most of the trades seem to happen right near the end. So make it so that you come home from work and you can turn it on and catch the last two hours. Yeah, that would be a lot better idea. And, and you're right. It would probably help ratings because I'm sure it was on at nine o'clock this morning. I wasn't I think watching it. was on it. at five this morning. I think they were talking about it. Well, I don't know. It's like the, it's like the Super Bowl. Exactly. The pregame show for the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. And, and it, I mean, I always find it rather funny because you're right. Most of the time, the guys being traded, well, let's put it this way. Uh, I like to think that. I'm reasonably up on sports. You do as well. There were more than a few guys today that I had to look up on Hockey DB or, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, Elite Prospects to find out who's this guy. I've never heard of him. Wow, there's 31 teams now. You're not going to know them all. Well, and not, especially not if you're in the farm system, if you're playing in the AHL yeah. team or you're on the fourth line. Or you're related to them. Well, or they're from your hometown. Pretty exciting trade for uh, Montour, eh? To come from Anaheim to... Play in Buffalo, very close you know, to home. From, you grew up in Oshkosh, and uh, outside of Toronto, that's your closest team. It's still not a bad drive. And uh, I was thinking about the excitement that the community likely had, and trying to compare it to Dundas. You know, Dundas is I don't know twenty twenty five thousand people now. It's full. I know that. Uh, if there was an NHL, is there a waiting for, list now for Dundas? There is. Yeah, <laughs> you have to line up. You have to call us to move in <laughs> <laughs> at Com Choice, or you yeah. can't get in. Um, Dundas have one NHL player and, uh, and I thought about that too. Uh, Mark played Jan- for Calgary. Jankowski. Jankowski, yeah. I'm not sure the excitement would be the same if he was traded in Dundas as, uh, maybe it was Nash Wigan. I don't know, but, uh, I think it's pretty cool. There, well, there haven't been many NHL players from Dundas. There's been not, you, you can't feel a hand, I don't think. There was, uh, uh, Chris Barch. Mm-hmm. Who played for Dallas for a while, and who was the nephew of uh, Perk Allen, Perce Allen, who was the yeah. 900 CHML play-by-play guy for the Hamilton Tie Cats for years. He was yeah. his nephew, and um, mm, who else? Is there any? There, I'm Sun, sure there's uh, Sandy. Um, oh, not Fitzpatrick. Yeah, and not many. No, not I, many. Tom Searle was in a couple of Olympics. But no, it's uh, so yeah. I, I think it probably would be very exciting, uh, no matter what. If you're from a small community, yeah. And, and you know what? I would compare it almost to. And you're a hockey guy. Uh, y- y- this may not mean as much to you, but there's a guy playing in the NBA right now from Hamilton. That's I think that's a huge deal. Shea Gilgis Alexander. You know what? For a lot of kids who are huge into basketball right now, basketball is their big sport. He is. I, I've said this before. You and I and some people listening may not be as familiar with this guy right now. He is the biggest sporting star from Hamilton today. Even if you have not heard, because you talk to anybody who's 25 or under, they know who this guy is. He is a massive, massive deal. And the fact that he's playing in the NBA, that he's starting in his first year, that he's from Hamilton, it's an enormous deal. And so, yeah, for, for communities, it's a big, big thing. Now, Mark Stone got traded today. Not everybody knows Mark Stone. Uh, he played for Ottawa. Pretty good hockey player. Okay, so here's the thing, though, Don. He's a pretty good hockey player. I agree with you. Gets traded to Vegas from Ottawa. Ottawa's cleaning house. They, they Right now, the CHML all-star team might be able to beat the Senators. I'm not sure. But it would be, be close. Could. The real McCoys would for sure. Um, Mark Stone is a pretty good hockey player, gets traded to Vegas, immediately signs an eight-year deal at $9.5 million per season. I don't think that anybody, even in the Stone household, has ever bought a ticket just to watch Mark Stone play. This, to me, may be the deal that tips the NHL into real 
trouble territory. Because if Mark Stone is worth nine and a half million, and he's what a thirty-five goal scorer, there are now forty-five, fifty guys in the league worth nine and a half million dollars. And Mark Stone, he may be a lovely man. I've never met him. Dull as white paint. There is nothing exciting about Mark Stone. He doesn't play exciting. He isn't effusive when you talk to him. His interviews are not interesting. He doesn't sell jerseys. He doesn't sell the game. He puts the puck in the net 35 times a year, and that's $9.5 million over eight years. How possibly can this league figure this out economic-wise if Mark Stone is $9.5 million? He's almost, they've almost given him Austin Matthews money. I don't get it. Well, um, John Traveris is um, no replica of Jim Carrey when in the excitement nope. department. I mean, John Traveris is a great hockey player. He's a very nice man. He's famous and sells jerseys because he plays for Toronto. Ottawa were prepared to pay him the same amount of money. I think a more interesting part of the story is he could have got the same money to play in Ottawa but wouldn't sign the eight-year deal. As a matter of fact, I think it was almost a sign-and-trade because I think another team can only sign you to seven years, yes. and your own team can sign you to eight. So Ottawa signed him and then traded him. Okay, but let me clarify one sec. I just pulled up Mark Stone's statistics. Uh, I said 35 goals a year. I'm wrong. Last year, Mark Stone stored, scored 28 goals. That was his career best. Before that, it was 20, 22, 23, and 26. This guy... There are now, I'm going to rephrase, not 40 guys. How many 20-goal scorers are there in the NHL? Probably 120 guys. Th- this, he's I don't not, know enough about him no, to but know he's not how John Tavares. game is. No, he's, he's, he's a very strong power forward. There's no question that he is a good player. I'm not arguing that he's a good player. Maybe a but very good, good players, player. Your point is good players don't get $9.5 million. $9.5 million. That is, so now if he at 20 goals, and last year he had a total of 62 points, which was his second highest ever. How old is he? He is 26. So he's in his prime. But, yep. but what is Mitch Marner worth then for the Leafs if this guy at 60 points- Connor McDavid is now worth a billion dollars a year compared to this because he sells jerseys, he sells tickets, he drives TV ratings, he puts up way more points. He's a more exciting player. There's he does highlight like he gets on the highlight reel. I I I don't understand how the NHL is going to be able to keep its finances in any shape. It's a salary cap. I know that, but now what you you being a a biggest the biggest Golden Knight fan I know, mm, yeah. Um, I like what, the pregame shows. What it's <laughs> what it's done is uh, George McPhee's got some figuring out to do because they've got some pretty decent young guys, and if they hit a couple, I mean, they George McPhee fleeced the National Hockey League uh, when they came into the league by accepting first round draft picks not to take certain players. Mm-hmm. So he did a marvelous job. So they've got tremendous prospects. Where this deal will come back and bite them is if one of those prospects turns into Con- or, uh, Mitch Marner. Mm-hmm. Like Mitch Marner wasn't first overall. Matthews was, McDavid was. Mitch Marner was an outstanding pick by Mark Hunter. So if Vegas have a couple of those coming up, they're not going to be able to keep them because they they've got $9.5 million invested in stone. That's where it comes back to bite you, and that's where those long-term contracts come back and hurt you. He'll be 34 years old at the end of this thing. Now, they're going to get him through most of his prime. And the other thing you have to look at, how, how the deal's structured, and I know most people don't care about this crap, but, I mean, if we're going to talk about it, the, the reality is, hopefully, George McPhee and, and, and the Golden Knights have structured his contract that he's only making 2 or $3 million a year towards the end yeah, of his contract yeah. so that he's if one of these other draft picks deserves big money they can then give it give it to him at the tail end of Stone's contract. Okay, so he just signed for 76 million dollars today. If Don Robertson signs a contract for 76 million dollars. Mm-hmm. After you finish after you walk away and the ink is drying and you are now what's the first thing you buy? Dundas. 
<laughs> my wife something nice. <laughs> a smart Wh- man. Whatever she wants. Yeah, uh, I don't a, know. It's I mean, a stunning that, amount of money, isn't it? Like it, it's it, it's hard to fathom. It is, and when they say, and I don't know. Um, uh, the owner of Vegas is pretty flush. I think he's not looking for no. There's he's, no. He's there's not no going food to the soup can. No, and they may have done what Toronto did with Traveris, and you may see the rich teams or not Traveris uh, Matthews doing this. Matthews' contract was almost all front end loaded in a signing bonus. Now mm-hmm. they have to distribute it over the years of the contract. But so it you, protects him against a strike or a lockout or anything. He gets paid even if the league isn't playing. So if Matthew's contract, and the, the amount of it escapes me now, but let's say it was $75 million because, no, it wasn't because it wasn't that long. But let's say it was $60 million, and I don't remember the number. If you get 50 of it up front and you have a guy around you that has any kind of clue at all, you take that $50 million and by the end of the contract, you've turned the 50 into 90 Yep. Now what's he made? Well, yeah, because, I mean, uh, if you had 76 million bucks, how much money do you need to live? Like, give yourself an allowance and say, you know what, this year I'm going to live like a king. I mean, I'm getting paid, I'm, I'm being fed, I'm being housed on the road. I'm going to buy a house and then I'm going to live on $200,000 this year. That's going to be the spending money and the rest is going to be invested. Well, he wouldn't be married if he's going to live on 200000 but I understand your point. You, you, if you decide that you want to keep your, yeah. you, you can, this money, I mean, this is the funny part. Whenever guys talk about how, well, I'm looking after my family. When William Nylander said, I got to look after my family. And it was a choice between 6 million or 7 million over seven years or whatever it was. It's like, wait a second. I, I'm reasonably sure that $42 million is going to be okay. You can look after your family. I'm not begrudging the guy for wanting more. Everybody wants more, but I don't give me the. I've got a hollow. Don't give me the. I got to look after my family kind of thing. Well, when you're when you're married with no kids and your dad had a lengthy career in the National Hockey League, presumably he isn't broke. You would like to think. Anyway, I just. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last Friday. Robert Kraft, who is the owner of the New England Patriots, got flagged for illegal use of the hands by not, someone else. Not his. By someone else. He was, um, so, according to police down in Jupiter, Florida, he, this guy who's worth like $6 billion went to some dingy strip mall place where women pleasure you. There's colloquial names for it, which I don't know if I'm allowed to say on the air, so I won't. But anyway, he got charged with soliciting prostitution. 50 bucks or something was the the police said. If you're, I mean, there are so many questions about this. I can't even get into all the the, the mind-swirling questions about this. I don't know why you're doing this to me. Okay. I'm not going to ask you about that part of it. What I do want to know is if if it turns out, because apparently police said there's video evidence of this. If it turns out that that video evidence exists, what should the NFL do with Bob Kraft? Do you, do you look at that? Not you, do the NFL, should they look at that and say, Hey, listen, man, your morals are your morals. And if you want to hang out with prostitutes in a strip mall in Florida, you know, we don't like it, but that's your choice. You, it'll embarrass you and it is going to embarrass you. Or does the NFL look at this and say, you know what? We, we have an expected level of morality in this league that we expect our owners and players to live up to. And so there's going to be a penalty. What would you do? Bring up Stormy Daniels. Do well, you think uh, she's got something to do with this too? Was she there? No. <laughs> if the allegations are true about Stormy Daniels, and I certainly don't know if they are. I, I think you're going to find that the NFL want to hold their standards for their owners above their players which is probably fair. The interesting th- well you can't be thing. you can't be pen- penalizing the work the help although it's you know expensive help but you can't be penalizing the help if the bosses aren't going to yeah. be paying the same price. No, it's not the gardener. Um the uh I don't I think what's going to happen is and, and this, this may have a bearing on it but although I don't know that there will be if it comes to a voter a conversation uh, if he got caught doing it, 
perhaps some of his partners in the National Football League that own teams are doing some soul searching right about now as well. I hope not. And I mean, not not that I hope they're not doing soul searching. I hope there's not other guys doing this. I mean, I I find it. Well, I wouldn't have guessed Bob Kraft mm-hmm. at the age of seventy seven was going to a strip mall for to, that uh, to uh, whatever he to have that done. Yeah, and I'm not, I don't have six billion dollars, but you would think that there would be another way for him to sort that out rather than going to a strip mall. So he's guilty of a lot of things. He's guilty of really weird poor judgment, poor judgment, uh, questionable morals. Uh, I mean, and again, I, there will be people who will say, no, that's entirely his choice of what he wants to do yeah. that way. Um, you would think a guy with a profile that, I mean, I mean, he's won Super Bowls. He's, uh, I mean, the craft name we use the family ketchup and soup every day. You would, you would think that the inner world, it must, it, it, it's an oddity. There are, there are people that get, that, that are charged with things that you go, what were they thinking? Hugh, like, is he Hugh knew? Grant. Remember Hugh Grant? Yeah. Same thing. One of the, at the time, one of the most women, many women would say one of the most attractive, sexiest men alive and is caught in it with a dingy prostitute. And I mean, I don't want in a dingy area with a prostitute and you Same say, thing. You go, what is he thinking? Exactly. But, but again, look, this discussion, I know what I think about this. I think a lot of people, whether they want to admit it or not, because a lot of people are saying, well, you know, that's his choice. Look, if you were deep down to admit it, you would say, no, I probably most people are saying, no, that I, that's gross. I don't agree with that. A- assuming it, it, it as described. But again, the question to me comes back to what does the NFL do? And I think they've got to do something. Well, if he gets charged and convicted, and it's a misdemeanor, I understand. It's it's not much worse than jaywalking in the states. And they're, I mean, they're gonna are they gonna set an example? And I I haven't done it. I'm sure somebody has. There there, there might be some historical data that other owners have done some inappropriate things over the last fifty or sixty years. It would be interesting to see what the standard of punishment was for those owners and or baseball owners. Yeah, but here's the biggest problem with this one if you're the NFL, is if the police are telling the truth, and I have no reason to think they're not, and there is video evidence of this, you and I both know that's not staying secret. That somehow, some way, that video is going to be out in the public sphere. Even if the cops didn't, like it was surveillance by the police. And he's not the only high profile guy that they not. Apparently not. And you know, there's a laundry list of guys. You know what Bob Kraft is hoping for right now? That there are five other guys on that list who are way bigger names than he is. So he gets. That's going to be a tough one. Knocked. I know. But I mean, if it's. See, I'm no expert. I've, I've done business with one hooker in my entire life. And, uh, pray tell. <laughs> well, no, it was recently. It was uh, like three weeks ago. Uh, and a very, pray tell. <laughs> and, a very, and a very nice lady. And she she had a house for sale that my stepdaughter bought, Bridget and Jared bought up in Port Perry. And they phoned and said, we've, we've, we've got the house we want to look at. Who's, who's the agent? And they said, Diane Hooker. And I went, ah, okay. So she's a very pleasant lady, but right. that's slightly my only di- experience with hookers. Slightly different story. Yes. Okay. I was, you had me a little worried there for that a was, second. That was the plan. I don't know what he's going to do. I mean, how do you explain, like, it's like Lucy, you got some explaining to do. I, I don't know how you get out of it. Well, I don't think you get out of it. I, I mean, I don't think. But it, it was a police setup and you're right. When, if you've got a guy like that, that is even coming to you on a private basis in a, in a lavish Ritz Carlton hotel. Like they film Rob Ford, right? There's going to be somebody when there's a high profile thing thinking there's a lot more money in a video of this than there is getting paid for what I'm doing. If you are Robert Kraft and if you did this and if there is video surveillance and I believe, and I think you do too, that it's inevitable because it always does happen. It always happens that somehow this will get out. Someone will leak it. How do you... Even if the NFL doesn't do anything to you, how do you show your face at your own stadium again in your private box, knowing that you are now the object of that kind of ridicule and that kind of snickering? And uh, I mean, uh, even if he, even if the NFL doesn't do anything to him, how does he possibly stand on the sideline again? How does Tom Brady go over to him and embrace him again like he did? And Tom Brady doesn't want to ruin his reputation. I mean, it, like this is yeah. 
this is a, a I don't know, I don't, I don't even know. I think the NFL should do something. I don't know if they need to do something, though, because I think if this well, thing been, plays out. He's been shamed, right? I mean, probably the most awkward incident he's had to face is going home for dinner that day. Well, to his 24-year-old girlfriend, who looks an awful lot, by the way, <laughs> couldn't help but notice this when I saw the picture, who looks an awful lot like Giselle Bunchen. Is it? She does. She really does. She's a just a, just a strike. I think she's twenty four or twenty eight or something. But it, it's it's. Wait a minute. So he's not. Uh, and he's I, not a lonely old. I'm man. not a big Bob Bob Kraft fan. He's not I'm a assuming old he's man. living with his wife of forty three no. years. No, his wife of forty. His girlfriend hasn't been alive for forty three years. No, no, no. This is not a lonely old so man. What the hell's he going to the strip plaza for? He should talk to me. He's wow. I don't get that. I don't know what the NFL does. I, the NFL, ha, the NFL has to do something. Unfortunately, well, or fortunately, because you can't give the owner a pass and then come down the next time a player does something of poor moral standard, and you can't then. So what was the charge? Is he guilty of just asking? Well, not according to the police video. According when they, to no, asking, according to receiving, and paying. So, so, you know, like if you are, it's a different thing, but how can you, some people will say what Colin Kaepernick did is horrendous and other people will say, no, he he just did something that was within his moral guidelines with kneeling for the anthem. Well, how can you possibly tell Colin Kaepernick that he is going to be suspended or whatever else and then tell the owner who's allegedly caught with a hooker that, oh no, it's fine. Yeah, there's no way the NFL can just walk away from this one or walk and or ignore this. it's not likely going to go away. Again, I, here's where, when this thing gets real is when that video comes out and we know it's going to come out. We know it's going to come out. Oh yeah. And if you're Bob Kraft and your 77 year old body is like I expect most 77 year old guys' bodies look like. I know what a 62-year-old body looks like. I don't want to know what it's going to look like when it's 77. And it suddenly is in the public eye. I don't know. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, the NFL may not have to do anything because how could you possibly ever show your face again? Well, I'm still really? blown away that he's got a 24-year-old girlfriend. I'll look up her age the, during the break. Well, it doesn't matter if you're even, if you're, if you're out 10 years. I would say that he, she's probably old, old enough to be his granddaughter. But he's got 6 billion bucks. And a sterling personality. That might make him look younger. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson in studio. Don't know if you saw these highlights. I don't know if you're much of a soccer watcher. But Chelsea was playing yesterday in English English Premier League. And they went to a shootout. And the Chelsea goalie who was on the field the coach decided to swap him out for the shootout for a backup goalie, but who is much better statistically in the shootout. So he went to, you know, in soccer, they hold up the little sign with the numbers and the goalie wouldn't come off the field. (laughs) He starts waving the coach back and giving him, no, I'm not coming off. And the coach is saying, yes, you're coming off. And he goes, no, I'm not coming off. Get out of here. And the the goalie would not leave the field. You've been a coach. Could be career limiting. Well... So you got a one-week suspension with without pay by the team. But you've been a coach. Did he yeah. win? Hang on. No, he lost. Well, then he's lucky he got a week. I've never heard of this happening before. I've never heard of a player refusing to do what a coach, you know, if, if you want to change your lines and the guy won't come off or if a goalie won't come out when you try to pull it, whatever. What do you do if you're a coach and one of your players in the middle of a game, because you can cut him after the game. Yep. In the game, what do you do if a guy will not listen to the coach? Our, well, it's happened. Ron Bernanke's our head coach. He coaches the forwards. And uh, until we find somebody we're comfortable with, I'm going to coach the defense. And we were in a situation five or six years ago when I couldn't get this guy to come off. Like, I'm trying to get quick changes, and he won't come off. And uh, we were back in the days when we were hard to beat, and we got a price. So I said to the guys, when he comes off, don't go on. So I wouldn't let him come off. He wouldn't come off when I told him to. So he came to the bench for a change. I said, you want to stay out? You stay out for the rest of the period. So I made him stay out the rest of the period. He came off next time we asked him to. But that it's a little bit reversed. But I had some control on that. 
So if we were trying to change our goalie and he wouldn't come, I don't know what you'd do. See, I don't even know what the rules are in sports. Like, let's say, for example, you have an outfielder that you want to take out of the game for a defensive replacement or something. And if the guy won't come off the field, I don't know what the rules are. Yeah, but generally you wouldn't do that in baseball during the game. Well, and generally speaking, when you're going to pull a goal. Okay, what about a pitcher? What if your pitcher will not leave? The, I've never seen it happen. What if a pitcher said, no, I'm not leaving? I'm sorry. You can stand here all day. I'm not leaving the mound. <laughs> I don't know what you do. I don't even, I don't even know if there it, are rules. It, it in, is. Here's where it's different. Like in soccer, the guy is 150 feet away from you perhaps, right? So you're not right there. The pitcher goes out. John Gibbons last year goes out to get a pitcher. He's standing right there with him and takes, now I've seen guys not want to give the ball up, mm-hmm. but they re- reluctantly do and they come out of the game. In hockey, I've seen not very many goaltenders not want to come out there. They're upset. But when you're changing, pardon me, when you're changing goalies, it's generally because the guy that's in there hasn't been doing much of a job. So they're pretty eager to get out because they're having a bad night and they know they're having a bad night. This is entirely different. And I, I'm sure it would be rather funny. I don't, I don't know what you do. I don't know. As, as I coach, say, I think I'd probably walk out and get them. Well, I, I don't know if there's a rule in any rule book. I guess you would get a delay of pen, delay of game penalty. Do they have that in soccer in a shootout? Well, no, I no, I don't know. I, I in hockey, I mean, no time on the clock anymore. I wondered. I've always wondered this one: what would happen if a ref gave a guy a penalty and he refused to go into the box, like just refused to go into the box? Well, you give him a gross misconduct, throw yeah. him out of the game, okay, and then well, the linesman scored him off the ice. Yeah, but what if he won't go? I mean, I, do you get to the point where you physically are dragging a player off the ice? And again, I've never seen it happen. Well, I think what would happen is your captain would go over and your teammates would go over and say, you know, the gig's up, you got to go, because they're going to, or the referee's going to forfeit the game, and we're all in deep doo-doo here. Like I've seen it on, our family watches, uh, often watches uh, America's Got Talent. I've seen people on there refuse to leave the stage because they don't like how they were judged. Remember well, the gong show? The gong show, yeah, with Chuck Barris? Yeah. Yep. The unknown comic? I, At least they all go. I've never, I had never seen this before. And it just got me wondering about whether there is even anything in sports. Because in, again, in, in, in tennis, if you were told something, tennis has a, a system of deductive, deducting points. We saw it before. We saw it with Serena Williams about a year ago, where you get a point taken away, you get a warning, then you get a point taken away, then you get a game taken away, then you can have a set taken away, then you can have the match revoked. And then you can stay out there all night if you want, because the match is over. Everyone's gone home. Well, but the, the situations you're citing are the officials have ability to stack on penalties. Yes, but I don't know if In any this... other, I don't know, other than tennis, I don't, and maybe golf, because you can be disqualified in golf. But I don't know if there's any other thing in any other sport where they can actually end the game, forfeit the entire game so everyone just goes home. And if you want to stay, you can stay. That's, that's the point. Because some of them... But this situation was different. This was just a player that wouldn't come out of the game because the coach told him to. Right. And he didn't, he didn't do anything against the rules I was going to say, the, the referee's just standing there giggling at the that's coach right. going, well, you look like you're screwed here. I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah, because the referee can't throw him out. Can't referee, what's the referee going to walk? Hey, look, the coach wants you out. He's going to say, I'm not going. I know he wants me out. I'm staying here. Yeah. Well, this is going to be, you know, and the captain should go, you know, you're going to get suspended. You're the gonna captain lo- did go. You're going to lose your job. And he obviously said, screw it, I'm staying in. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to prove to him I can, I can win this shootout. It is only chance for any kind of redemption was to win the shootout. But even if he'd won say the, he won, okay, so you're a coach. Even, oh, let's say your goalie did that. Let's say you got to a shootout and you had a guy who was great in the shootout and you tried to switch the goalie and your guy who was on the ice said, no, I'm not coming off. I'm just not coming. And I'll win the shootout. Let's say, and, and he, you couldn't get him off the ice. You said, fine, take it. Even if you win that shootout, are you then saying, okay, you were right? Probably. As long <laughs> as you won. <laughs> I mean, you cut him a lot more slack if you win. It's a bit of an odd one, though. That was, I don't know what I don't know how do. that coach, I don't know how that coach does, has any credibility or any ability to coach his team from here on. Well, the goalie certainly flipped him the bird. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I don't know how that coach 
has any kind of credibility to be a coach from here on. Because he, the player just said, if you if you stand up to the coach hard enough, you get what you want. Maybe you'll find out the goalie had money on the game. I hadn't heard that suggestion yet, but... Um, <laughs> we put that other guy in, I'm going to lose his bet. Hmm. Hadn't even thought about that one. Uh, you know, your mind doesn't work like mine, good, and lucky you. I guess. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.